0: What's up, everybody? How are we doing? Good. Last sermon for the foreseeable future. Uh, time at Salt's coming to a close here, which is crazy because I started going to Salt Company my freshman year when I was at UNI. That was like, we're going on my ninth year here, attending Salt Company every Thursday night. So I've been around the block, been exactly where you guys are. Seen a lot of circumstances in my life change, progressed through a bunch of life stages. But throughout these nine years, I've known the Lord deeply and intimately, and I've loved every second. So all company is a great blessing. You guys are blessed to be able to attend a ministry like this, and I've been blessed to be able to help contribute to it. Ryan was telling me, dude, you should tell some sort of funny story over the, your past years. And the first obvious one that came to mind, which some of you guys have probably seen it was like really embarrassing for me you probably saw it, but we've never talked about it for sure no students have ever talked to me about it, it was uh, it was last year I was preaching I don't remember what on but I got to like the bottom of my notes and I wasn't thinking about like oh shoot I got to turn my page here so I kind of panicked a little bit and I did one of these and I went and I just like licked the mic <laughs> instead of licking my thumb to turn my page and I heard a few guys laughing over here and I like, kind of made eye contact with them but I Nobody said anything to me. I just kept moving on. I should have, looking back, I should have pointed it out. We should have all laughed together. But it was just a random time that <laughs> I licked the microphone. And then Ryan's embarrassed me with that story for years since or since last year. Uh, tonight, I kind of want to share what I feel like is almost like my life sermon, my swan song, if you will. The thing that, um, as I'm leaving, I want you guys to remember this. If you remember anything I say from stage, I want you to remember what I have to say tonight. Not because... I'm ultra wise, or because I've earned your respect, or anything like that, simply because this is what the Lord has put on my heart, is what I think is one of the most important aspects of the Christian life, okay, and the text actually fits perfectly with where we're ending our series in Revelation tonight, so if you have your Bible, open up to Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 14, take a few verses at a time, verse 14 says this, Write to the angel of the church in Laodicea. Thus says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Okay, if you're taking notes, we're jumping right in. Your big idea of the night is this don't be lukewarm. Be on fire for Jesus. Okay? If there's one thing I've learned attending this ministry for the past nine years. It's that you need to be passionate. You need to be on fire for Jesus. But if that's true, we kind of have a little bit of a problem here in the text. Okay? If Jesus wants us to be on fire, why does he also say, I wish you were cold. I wish that you were cold or hot. Okay? Like, does he want us to be indifferent? Does he want us to be apathetic? What's he saying there? Isn't that a little weird? Obviously, it's good to be hot. It's good to be passionate and on fire. It's bad to be lukewarm. We know that. But why would he say, I wish that you were hot or cold? Okay? in A little bit of context. At first glance, we miss kind of the whole point of this Of what they're saying okay I'm kind of setting you up for failure here when we read this text what we do is something that we do all the time on accident that can be detrimental to the way you read the Bible is that we put on our glasses of us as Americans living in 2022 and we project our experiences and our figures of speech and our language onto the text and we think oh this had to have just meant the same thing that it did to the original audience that it does to us okay so I totally led you astray that's not our big idea at all here's why The church in Laodicea had no access to naturally hot or naturally cold water, okay? They were super advanced technologically, so they built these aqueducts from miles outside the city that brought in hot water, brought in cold water into the city, and it worked. The water was easily accessible, but it never reached the city at the temperature at which it was most desired, okay? As the hot water traveled through these aqueducts, through these pipes, Into the city, the hot water became lukewarm. As the cold water came into the city, as you would guess, by the time it got there, it was lukewarm. So they had an adequate supply of water, but it all came in at this disgusting, lukewarm temperature. Which to us, you're like, who cares? I drink lukewarm water all the time. What's the big deal here? Well, the reason you think it's not a big deal is because we can get whatever we want, whenever we want. Right? You want hot water, you just turn the left one on. Okay? Okay? To them, this is a very big deal. Hot water had very specific uses. Cold water had very specific uses that were beneficial. For hot water, you would obviously assume that they bathed in it. For cold water, they drank that water. They gardened with that water. It had very specific uses. So Jesus is calling this church, he's calling them as a people, you are lukewarm. So what's he saying there? Here's what he's not saying. He's not making a passion statement. He's making a purpose statement. Not that passion is bad. Obviously, passion is not bad. You should be passionate about the things of the Lord. But passion alone will never sustain you in the Christian life. So if we just chalk it up and we simplify it by saying, be on fire, be passionate for Jesus, that's not enough. That's totally leading you astray. Jesus is also not saying I wish that you were all in or all out. Sometimes we think that. If we say hot or cold, oh, well, he just wishes we wouldn't toe the line. He wishes we'd be all in or all out. What Jesus is saying is he's saying, I wish that your purpose in life was all about me. I wish you were useful to me. But instead, your purpose in life is completely wrapped up in yourself. So our new big idea for the night, our new starting point, Starts the same. Don't be lukewarm. Be useful to Christ. In other words, have purpose rooted in Christ. Have a foundation for life built on Jesus. Okay, Jesus goes on to rebuke this church. He's pretty frustrating. We find out why in verses 17 and 18, Jesus says, For you say, I'm rich, I've become wealthy and need nothing. And you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, white clothes so that you may be dressed, and your shameful nakedness not exposed, an ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. Okay? So these rebukes, you're kind of like, what the heck? Those are a little weird. They don't really make sense. They don't offend me at all. They were really offensive to the original audience. Here's why. Jesus is basically saying, all the things you guys are so proud of, all the things you've worked so hard for, are actually the things that have made you lukewarm to me. They became your vices. The first thing he says, the first rebuke, he says, you're wealthy. You are completely wealthy. For you say, I'm rich, I become wealthy, need nothing. Which was actually true for them, Okay? They were wealthy, and they needed nothing. One way we know this is that they experienced this massive earthquake. The surrounding cities were completely destroyed and devastated. Other cities needed the government to come in and help them to build back everything. Laodicea needed nothing but the cash that was in their pockets. Okay, They built back everything with their own money. The government didn't help them at all because they were so wealthy. They're filthy rich. Yet Jesus is saying they were truly poor. In the truest sense, they were poor towards God. The second thing he rebukes them on is he says, you're naked. Which is in direct opposition to the vibrant wool industry that the city possessed. Okay? Their clothing industry was far ahead of everybody else's. So it's ironic that Jesus says, you're actually naked. I advise you to buy from me white clothing to clothe yourself with. They never would have considered themselves as naked people. They had top-of-the-line clothing. And the third thing he says is, he says, you're blind. Equally as ironic as the other two. He says, I want you to buy from me ointment. I want you to buy from me salve to spread on your eyes. Which is ironic because they had this med school that was super advanced. They literally had this ointment that like healed people's eyes. Don't really know what was so special about it. But they prided themselves on the fact that they had this special medical treatment for people's eyes. And Jesus saying, no, 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 you're truly blind. Their success blinded them. Okay, all the things that they thought they possessed, the things that they were very proud of, Jesus is offering them the real versions of those things. And besides being completely fooled, in the meantime, they accidentally pushed Jesus outside the doors of the church. Okay, as he's standing outside, which this is the only church where Jesus is talking about, like, I'm knocking, please let me in. He's standing on the outside. He gives correction and instruction. So, Jesus gives a few commands that we'll see starting in verse 19. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be zealous and repent. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, so Jesus preps the church with a warning. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. Not a popular opinion today, but what we can infer from this is that there's no such thing as true love without some sense of correction and discipline. Okay, so my daughter Margot, if she grows up, let's say she's 10 years old one day, she comes home, spends some time on the playground, starts cussing me out. Learned a few words on the playground. Bleep this, bleep you, bleepity bleep, all right? What do I do if my daughter surprises me with that one day? Do I just smile and say, oh, she's so cute. You know, girls will be girls. What are you going to do? Do nothing? Just like videotape it, upload it, TikTok, whatever? Of course not. Of course not. Love demands me that I teach her, that I show her the way she ought to go, and that I rebuke her and discipline her. All right? And, And the rebuke and the discipline can be as simple as saying, hey, look, you did this. That's wrong. You need to stop. Okay? The book of Proverbs goes so far to say that whoever spares the rod, basically whoever doesn't discipline their child, hates his son. But whoever loves him is diligent to discipline him. How can this be true? Why is this true? I mean, if you think about it in terms of raising a dog, raising a child, or even imposing self-discipline on yourself, discipline is always the catalyst necessary to get you to where you want to be. You need to be disciplined. My personal definition of discipline that I've been using for years is discipline is doing the things you know you need to do in order to be the person you want to be regardless of the way you feel. Doing the things you know you need to do in order to be the person that you want to be regardless of the way you feel. Perhaps Jesus is doing the same thing with us tonight. Perhaps he's calling us out He's rebuking us. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and I discipline. Don't think of this as such a negative thing. This is a good thing. Why is this a good thing? Jesus wants you to be more like himself. And the surest way to make sure that that doesn't happen is if you never experience correction, rebuke, discipline. Okay, don't think of discipline from God as punishment. That's not what it is. That, that couldn't be further from the truth. Think of it as loving correction, okay? Margot cusses me out. (laughs) I discipline her. Not because I'm punishing her because she needs to pay for what she did because she did wrong. She needs to know that. She can't understand that. She needs me to lovingly guide her, correct her, and teach her the way she should go. I would say anything short of this is actually not loving her as best I can. So if you feel like you're being corrected by Jesus, if you feel like He's poking you. Rejoice in that. Maybe it means that he's loving, lovingly pursuing you. And you need to respond to that correction, okay? The way you do that, uh, Jesus' command, the first thing you do is you be zealous and repent. This is what he moves on to say. Be zealous and repent of whatever it is he calls you out for. And this looks different for everyone, Okay? And your first point of application for the night is to figure out for yourself what needs to be altered in your life. What is Jesus trying to correct you and rebuke you on? Maybe you're like the Laodiceans. Maybe you're self-sufficient and proud. Maybe you have a ton of money. The zealous and repentant thing to do might be give a bunch of money away to the church. Hey, it's give back night after all. I just remembered that actually. Give money away to the church. Okay? Maybe you're struggling with pornography zealous repentance could look like for you, legitimately selling your iPhone, getting rid of your computer, and only doing your schoolwork in the library. I might sound crazy, but I'm serious. Maybe you're angry towards roommates. You're bitter. Deep clean your whole house, don't say anything. Clean up their mess, don't point out what you did. All right, You're going to have to ask yourself, what is that radical step of zealous repentance that I need to do? I mean, Jesus says... If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. What he's saying is, do the crazy thing in order to be holy. The second thing is, after be zealous and repent, is you need to open the door. If you've shut him out, open the door. If you know Jesus is on the outside of your life, let him in tonight. It really can be as simple as that. Let him in tonight. If you're listening to me speak the words of God over you, consider it a second chance. There is still time. Or maybe, maybe you just never let him in, right? The way for you to find salvation is as simple as believing in who Jesus is and what he did and confessing him as Savior and Lord over your life. Letting him guide you and correct you, letting him be the leader of your life accepting the payment for your sins that he took in his body on the cross. The way to salvation is to let Jesus into your life. And if he's knocking at the door, if you feel him knocking, let him in tonight. Okay, so by this point, it's obvious what the problems in Laodicea were. And it should be obvious that we deal with very similar things today. Okay, they might shift a little bit, they might look a little bit different, but I would argue we are actually more at risk to accidentally pushing Jesus outside and shutting the door as we suffer with our insane comforts and ridiculous problems, right? Like some of our biggest problems today, I'm hungry because I ate lunch an hour late, my phone battery sucks, I need an oil change, and my homework is really hard, okay? Okay? If those are the main things that you're thinking about and the things that take up your time, it is going to be very easy for you to accidentally push Jesus to the outside. It's easy to become distracted with silly and insignificant things in life. Okay, I would say the biggest threat to our generation would be that we would become so distracted from the things that actually matter that we end up giving all of our attention and all of our energy toward things that don't matter in the slightest when our lives are said and done. The biggest threat to us is distraction. Bob Goff has this quote that I really like. He says, I used to be afraid of failing at something that really mattered to me, but now I'm more afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. Is that you? I would argue the greatest threat to your life and your vitality in Christ is not hedonism, is not this, you know, never-ending pursuit of pleasure. Not that tomorrow night you'll go to the bars, get hammered, sleep with somebody, and ruin your life in a night. The greatest threat to your life is that you'll become perpetually and permanently distracted by things that don't matter. So how do we fight this? This is something I care so deeply about. How do we fight this? Making it to the end of your life, and not regretting the way you spent your days, but rejoicing, looking back with joy that you had a deep and strong and meaningful relationship with Christ that influenced every area of your life. How do we not become lukewarm? First is, you gotta do the things you just said. Be zealous and repent and open the door if he's knocking. After that, very practically, after Jesus' commands, you get Mikey's commands. <laughs> okay? It's my last sermon. I can do what I want. Uh These are the things I've found that will help keep you healthy as a follower of Christ for the rest of your days. First thing, morning solitude. By the way, I've said these things over and over for the past five years, okay? They're extremely simple. They're nothing profound. I've been saying them forever. Daily solitude with Christ. Do it in the morning. I've got to the point where I'm like, for those of you who say, oh, I do my best Bible reading time at night. No, you don't. The only reason you think that is because you've never committed to giving the first 30 minutes of your day to Jesus. Stop reading your Bible at night. Read it in the morning, first thing. Fill your mind with Christ first thing in the morning. I'm confident if you started every morning in silence, in solitude, consuming the word of God rather than opening your phone, you're going to have more peace than you do now. Everybody wants more peace in their life. Opening your phone, checking your text, checking your email, seeing if anybody liked your post, checking your calendar for things that are a month in advance that stress you out. Then, you know, you get distracted on your phone, and then by this time, oh, wait, I forgot to read my Bible, now i got to go to class. That's like the most havoc-wreaking life you could bring on yourself, okay? That's like the recipe, literally the recipe for anxiety. When you skip your morning solitude, it's no wonder We're struggling to find peace. When I say solitude, I mean literally being by yourself, okay? Not reading the Bible with your roommates, not with your boyfriend, not with your girlfriend, uh, you know, whatever. Reading the Bible by yourself, spending time alone with God. The rule of thumb with this discipline is this. Does God have my full attention this morning? That's a question you should ask yourself. Does God have my full attention this morning? Obviously, I'm not telling you that you should be spending all of your time for all of your days only thinking about God. You have to be a normal human, okay? You have to work out and eat food, study, work hard. But if you can learn to love dedicating the first 30 minutes of every day of your life to undivided attention to God, you will experience peace like no other. Okay? If Jesus himself continually took time to be by himself to spend time with his Father, if he said this was a necessity for him and he taught his disciples to do the same, he modeled this for us, it's probably a good idea if we do it too. Right? Duh. I mean, he's God. And he's doing this every day, spending time with God. We ought to do this too. Why do you do this? The core of this discipline is to further your relationship with your true Father in heaven. Deepening the relationship, okay? Imagine if every day, I said hi to Jenny and Margo, my wife and daughter. I say, I "I love you guys. Hope you have a great day. Uh, Occasionally, I send them a text saying hi. (laughs) After five years of doing this, that's all the time and intention I give them. After five years of doing this, is my relationship better with them or worse? Probably worse. Because that's no relationship at all. That's just crazy. On the other hand, if every day I gave my wife and daughter 30 minutes to an hour of undivided attention where I'm not on my phone, I ask them questions about their day, I sit in their presence, tell them I love them, we hang out. Okay, that looks way different, right? Five years from now, our family looks way different. Everyone wants to be a part of a family that operates like that. If I take care of the time and attention aspect of my family, everything else falls into place. Relationships take time and attention. Someone once asked Mother Teresa for spiritual direction. This guy was dealing with some problems and his soul asked for advice. How do I better follow Jesus? Here's what she said. Well, when you spend one hour a day adoring your Lord and never do anything which you know is wrong, you'll be fine. Maybe a little simplistic, but true, okay? I'm not saying every morning has to be this epiphany where you learn something new and God's altered your life and you hear the, the audible voice of God. What I'm saying is, Just give the first part of your morning to God. Tomorrow morning, do it. And then the next day, do it. And the next day, and the next day. Then you ask, what do I do in this morning solitude? That's Mikey's command number two. Read the word. Okay, you're you're dedicating time to give attention to God. How are you going to spend it? You're going to read the word. If you want to not be lukewarm you got to feed yourself on this book. The word of God is perfect, written for you, so that you are edified, you are made holy. This book has everything you need in order to live a holy life and find salvation. And if that's true, then we have to keep coming back to it on a regular basis. And we have to keep coming back to the true word. Okay, we're going to need this forever. 2 Timothy 316 says, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Okay? Make sure you're reading the word and not just other Christian books, okay? That's not going to cut it. They're a great supplement, but they can never be a substitute to replace time reading the actual word. Do I have any office fans in the room? Who here thinks that they've watched the most Office? Who's watched it like two times through, every episode? Anybody? Jeez. all right. Three times through, anybody? Four? You serious? Five? You've seen every episode? Six times? All right. I totally just set Matt up for, I'm going to roast him. Ready? Boom, roasted. You know how many hours... It takes to read through the entire Bible. 75, about. Okay, trigger warning here. You're you're all about to be convicted. You know how many hours it takes to watch every episode of The Office? 99. That's a lot of hours. Yeah, ooh, you kind of like feel gross after hearing that, right? Like for every episode that you watch of The Office, you could have read through the entire Bible. I'm not roasting you, Matt, but you did set yourself up for that, so... What I'm saying is, obviously, you know, there's nothing in the Bible that says you must read every word. I'm just saying, it's a good idea to read through the entire Bible. If you've never done that before, I challenge you, read through the entire Bible. If you're dedicating 30 minutes of every day towards reading it, you will easily read through the Bible in a year. I promise you. And just a little bit of strategy here, mix in some Old Testament and some New Testament, okay? You're probably going to get burnt out if you start In Genesis and you try to read straight through, okay? That's not a great recipe for success. Maybe create your own plan, find a Bible plan that mixes in Old Testament and New Testament, but read through the entire Bible. If if we believe that this word is true, we should want to hear every single word inside of it. Read the word consistently, okay? Find something that works for you and keep coming back to it. If you miss a day, by the way, who cares? Just pick it up again tomorrow morning. Read it again. Number three, my last command. Pray. Duh. And pray like Jesus said to. Second thing you do in this time of morning solitude is pray like Jesus said. Hear his words from Matthew 6. It says, but when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who's in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. When you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles, since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, because your Father knows the things you need before you ask him. Therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Okay? Sneak peek into my prayer life. Every morning looks the exact same for me. Spend time in the word. Write down one takeaway. For me this morning, it was what Jesus said. If you're faithful in a little, you'll be faithful in a lot. No one can serve both God and money. All right? That was my one takeaway. like so I could never heard that before. I was just like, oh yeah, that's good. I should probably think about that throughout the day from Luke 16. Okay, then I wrote it down in my journal. That's my one takeaway. After that, I write down a list of things that I want to bring to God in prayer. The things that I want to pray to him. And the reason I do this is because it keeps me from both ditches that we often fall into in prayer. It keeps me from babbling on and it keeps me from getting super distracted. Okay, so like if I pray about something and then I'm done with it, I just move on to the next thing on my list. Then I go to a different room, I shut the door, I get on my knees, and I pray. And I pray through, uh, actually, this acronym that I'm going to throw up on the screen called ACTS. Okay, and the A stands for, this is, so this is like how I pray. The A stands for adoration. So I spend the first part of my time praying, telling God things about himself, giving him praise and glory, adoring him, and reciting true things about him kind of prepares my heart. The second thing is confession. I start confessing the things I need to confess. My known and unknown sins. T is thanksgiving. I I just start thanking God for everything that I can think of, all the things that I'm thankful for. And then S is supplication, which means the things that I want to ask him. So that's where my list comes in. So then after my heart is prepared by going through those first three, By the time I'm at supplication, I'm ready to ask God with the right heart posture. And then once I'm done with that, I finish with the Lord's Prayer every time. Because Jesus said, you should pray like this. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to pray like that. So I finish with the Lord's Prayer. Now, that's just what I do, that's just what I've found is helpful for me, take it or leave it, whatever. The point is this, when you're praying, you're not just speaking into the air. You're not just talking to yourself. You're actually getting the full attention of God. He's actually listening to you. Every word reaches his ears. We should take that as an honor, and we should take it seriously. and We should take advantage of it. Because it actually works. When you're praying, you're moving the hand that's holding the world. You're talking to the one who can literally do anything, and he wants to work on your behalf for his glory. So we should ask him, right? And oh, by the way, if Jesus Christ, who was God, needed to spend time in prayer by himself on his knees, probably a good idea if we do it too. Okay, those are my commands if you want to make it to the end and not be a lukewarm Christian by the time you die. Okay, for my brothers and sisters who've walked away from the faith, these three things, first to go. And a final word on the disciplines themselves, it's not going to be a blast right away, all right, you shouldn't expect it to be, they're called disciplines after all, right, they're hard, but over time, let the disciplines lead you to delight, somebody told me that my freshman year, I never forgot it, discipline will lead you to delight, the reason I'm fired up about all this, the reason I've been saying this so much, and this whole sermon was probably super predictable. It's not because I want you to be a more efficient human. Not because I want you to be a more efficient Christian. Not because I think this is a great way to self-improve, and I should write a book about it. No. That stuff's garbage. There's no end to that. There's always going to be some flashy new thing, some flashy new way to improve yourself, to make yourself more efficient. On the other hand, there's literally no replacement for spending time with God every morning. For reading his word and taking all things to him in prayer. The reason there's no substitute for that is because this is how you develop a relationship with God. One that gives you meaning and purpose in life. It gives you hope and joy and peace in the face of life's greatest sufferings and trials and hardships. You can handle them with God. And I'm speaking to myself here tonight too. Right? I want to make it to the end. I want to live a holy life. I want to please Jesus with my thoughts, my actions, my life. Why? I want to, I'm going to die one day and I want to enter into eternity and hear those proud words that Jesus speaks over me. Well done, good and faithful servant. I'm going to hear those words. There's nothing you can do to stop me. I'm going to hear those words. It's the goal of my life to hear those words spoken over me. I'm going to hear them. The blood of Christ has covered me. I'm forgiven. I'm whole. I'm being renewed and strengthened day by day to pursue him with everything I have. So Saul, company, what the Spirit says to the churches, what I say to myself, I say to you, do not be lukewarm. Give everything you have to the one who gave it all for you, not just your passion, but your purpose in life. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus Christ, for who you are. Thank you that while we were still enemies of you, you died for us. Willingly. It wasn't easy. It wasn't fun. But you willingly did it. Lord, we want to respond to your sacrifice and your love for us with obedient lives. Lord, what a waste if we just say that we believe all these things and we agree with what the Bible says, but we don't do what it says. What a shame. Lord, I pray that for all those in the room that you're knocking on their hearts, I pray that they would respond, that they would respond in faith that they would be courageous and give their lives to you, that they would never look back, that they would learn what it means to follow you and they would employ that for the rest of their lives so that they may hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. I can't wait for that day, Lord. I'm looking forward to it. I know you're going to take me there and I pray that you take as many of my brothers and sisters with me. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.